when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm George Parker, the FT's political editor, and this week we're going to be discussing the political fallout of the Google tax saga, and also taking a look at whether Labour under Jeremy Corbyn is losing touch with its working-class voters. I'm delighted to be joined by John Gapper, our chief business commentator, and Vanessa Holder, our tax correspondent, to look at the implication of Google's £130 million tax bill. Later, we'll hear from Janan Ganesh, our political commentator, and Aisha Hazarika, a former advisor to Harriet Harman and an expert on the Labour Party. But first... Was Google's £130 million tax deal with HM Revenue and Customs a major success, as George Osborne claimed, or just a step forward, as number 10 preferred? John Gapper, if I could start with you, do you think this deal heralded the start of an era where big footloose corporations will start to pay more tax in the places they do business? Well, I think Google certainly saw it as being very significant, wanted it to be seen as very significant. They'd been audited by the HMRC, the tax authorities behind the scenes, for since 2009. HMRC was looking at the way they accounted for the UK operations, which were, which was already very controversial. And at the same time, you were seeing this OECD process where a lot of countries were getting in rooms together to try to kind of tighten up on tax evasion, tax avoidance, and change the rules, the guidelines under which uh, national laws are written. And those two things came together, and the sort of end result was that uh, the tax authorities said, OK, we're not going to change your fundamental basis of taxation, but we're going to sort of add more of an element, use the flexibility that we're now allowed a bit more, and we think you should pay a bit more. And the, the sums added up to £130 million over 10 years, raised its effective rate for the 18 months, most recent 18 months, by 13 I think 0.8 million. And so Google then sort of this leaked. We ran a story last Friday night. And I think Google was expecting it to be greeted with some pleasure by the taxpayer that they were that they'd listened, and they were going to pay more. Well, and it seems to be the case that George Osborne thought it'd be well received by the media and political opinion as well. That's um, right. On, on the Friday night, when we put out the story on our website, that evening, the Treasury put out a statement welcoming it and saying it was evidence that its policies and George Osborne's so-called Google tax was having an effect. So, Vanessa Holder, was this a good deal, in your view, for Google or a good deal for the British taxpayer? I really don't know. And the funny thing is that nobody knows except Google and HMRC because you do actually need to know the facts, the really quite detailed issues, the sort of thing that HMRC has been trawling over the books all these years to find out. So we don't know, but it's quite clear that from a matter of perceptions, it's not seen as a good deal. You know, Google's sales in the UK are colossal. In 2014, it was $6.5 billion. Now, people look at that and they look at $138 million and they think it's derisory. 
Well, they do. And also they would look at the corporation tax levies, of course, on the basis of activity. But when you consider Google's building a massive new headquarters at King's Cross, I think employing, what is it, two and a half thousand people, something like that, wouldn't British taxpayers conclude from that that this is a centre of economic activity and they should be paying more tax? There's no question that Google's got a big operation in the UK. It's got a lot of you know, well-paid salespeople here. That's not in doubt. But the question is how much value they add to the profits that are created here in Britain. And, you know, if you go into the parent company's accounts, look at how much sales and marketing is as a proportion of their cost. It's not a huge amount. It's about 16%. So that would actually make you think possibly the £138 million is quite reasonable. Mm. Now, John Guffer, is this a case of corporate immorality, which is the way the narrative has played out at Westminster this week, or is it evidence of a corporate tax system that's unfit for the 21st century? Well, I think that you have to take a step back on the point, I think, that Vanessa was alluding to and say that actually reaching back to the League of Nations in 1928 and the the multinational treaties that have been written since then, the basis of international corporate taxation is you should have most taxation happen where the value is created not on the basis of local sales. Now, there's a footnote to that, which is it actually doesn't quite work out like that because you can transfer your IP and your uh, your brand values and stick them on an offshore island. But we'll come back to that. <laughs> the basic idea is that big Californian companies that have all their research in the US, they should pay most of the tax there. And the sales outlets in other parts of the world should be a relatively lightly taxed in those other countries. And by the way, it works the other way around for British companies, or indeed French companies or Italian companies. Uh, you have a drugs company or a bank or a defence company with a lot of research and value in one country, and then those European companies will be lightly taxed in the US, for example. So that's the basis of taxation. Then when you come to Google, you say, well, they have this enormous... They're booking these enormous sales in the UK, but it's perfectly possible under the current arrangements to think, well, still, they shouldn't be paying that much tax here because the real value, the brand value of Google, was not invented here. Mm. Vanessa Holder, in the midst of all this political storm over the Google tax this week, Andrew Tyree, the very cerebral chairman of the Treasury Select Committee, announced that he was conducting a review into what he called the shifting sands of the British tax base and basically looking at whether we have a tax system generally which is fit for purpose. Do you think there's something fundamentally wrong? I think the problems that we're seeing in corporate tax, it's the area where there's the greatest problems. I'm not hugely optimistic that UK parliamentarians will be able to come up with any good solutions. The interesting work has been done globally at the OECD. It's really too early to judge whether that's a success or not. But I just think anybody who thinks this is in any way simple, I mean, the idea that you could get through you know, a few years of inquiries and come up with something that was really meaningful, I'm just not very hopeful. I don't think anyone necessarily thinks it's simple, but I suppose what you, when you look at the fact that we're, whatever it is, six or seven years now into an economic recovery and the British government's still running a deficit of approaching £80 billion a year, you start to wonder whether actually we need to change the basis on which things are taxed in this country, whether it's income or indeed corporate profits. Good luck with that. <laughs> That's true. Now, John, is this specifically a problem to do with the digital economy, do you think? Do you think the digital economy poses a special problem for the well, taxman? Well, it does in this sense. I don't think it's unique to the digital economy, but I think it's unique to the services and the intangible assets. 
And it goes back to something I mentioned earlier. The idea, which I think most people in the street could accept, which is that most of the real value of Google or McDonald's, for example, is in the States. So that's where the major taxation of the company should take place. People would accept that, I think. Not everybody, but quite a lot of people. What I think a lot of people actually quite rightly have a lot of difficulty with is the idea that you can then take all of those royalties, that IP value, all of that research, and stick it on an offshore island. You just transfer it to Bermuda. And so most of the tax then is flowing through Bermuda. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are going to say, well, the, that's just a mockery of the system. And I think that that, along with a second thing, which is you have this very dysfunctional U.S. system, which basically says if you bring these profits home, we're going to tax them at a pretty high corporate tax rate of 35 40% effectively, but allows those companies to keep them basically in gigantic piggy banks offshore in Bermuda or in other tax-advantaged havens. You've then got, I think, a pretty inflammatory situation where the IP is being moved to Bermuda, these so-called double Irish arrangements, and Apple, for example, has got two billion in cash—sorry, two hundred billion in cash—basically sitting there. Now, the U.S. is going to say, "Well, that's our money. Eventually, it's going to come back to us, and we're going to tax it." But it's a sort of gigantic aggravation, I think, to everybody. Vanessa, hmm. can I ask you one very specific question, which has been raised in Parliament quite recently, and that's the idea of offshore companies, particularly Chinese companies, selling things on the internet through platforms like Amazon and eBay, but without charging VAT and undercutting British suppliers. Do you think the people who operate those platforms, like eBay or Amazon, should actually take more responsibility for what's going on? That's a really interesting point to raise, and it just shows how some of these challenges from digital companies, they go beyond the kind of corporate taxings that we're used to talking about. And this is a problem which turns out to be a really knotty problem about how to enforce the VAT rules when you've got people selling from outside Europe. And I think the, the answer is going to have to lie with in some way some greater responsibility being taken by the platforms. But when I looked into it, the solutions didn't look that easy. So I think there's more work to be done on this. Yeah, that, that is the problem, that nothing's easy in this world. And I just wonder, John, just finally, whether... Leaving aside the complexities of the ta international tax regime, whether companies like big multinational companies such as Google, whether they have to make a political calculation as much as an economic calculation, the calculation being unless we're seen to be good corporate citizens and unless we're seen to be paying more tax and not registering IPs on islands in the Caribbean, there will be repercussions, either political repercussions or a consumer backlash. I think certainly that might well be the case, and we've seen that sort of minor questions in the case of Starbucks and so forth. And I think in some ways the companies would, I think they'd protest and lobby against it. But in some ways, if you move to a sales-based system where actually tax was calculated according to where the sales were, which would be harder to avoid, in some ways it would be a relief for those companies because the person in the street would say, oh, yeah, sales, that's being taxed here. They're paying the money. It's like a sort of corporate VAT. I understand that. But there's a problem here. And the problem is, if you're Google and you say, OK, I'm just going to start paying on a sales basis, I'm going to whack up my UK tax charge enormously, which will make everybody in the UK happy, and in France and in Italy, what are they going to say in the US? They're going to say, you're breaching international tax treaties because that's our money. 
Well, maybe we just change the international tax treaties to have an international sales tax, Vanessa. It would work quite well for some countries. It's not so good if you're an exporter. <laughs> yeah. And not necessarily, by the way, very good for the UK, because overall, if you move to that system, Google would be paying more money, but you'd be possibly losing money from all of those IP-based British companies. And the big difficulty is reaching agreement. Vanessa Holder and John Gapper, thank you very much. Janan Ganesh, you wrote about Labour's farewell to the working class. What do you mean? It was almost an observation about UKIP as much as Labour, in that everyone is certain that UKIP are done for. There's a very good column by John Rental back in December when UKIP failed to win the Oldham by-election, which uh, said as much. They only had emerged from the last general election with one MP. There's chaos going on to do with their leadership situation. And so people are sure that they've peaked and have a dismal future. And I argued in the column that that is true or was true until Jeremy Corbyn happened and that the leftward tilt that Labour are taking, especially on cultural subjects under Jeremy Corbyn, means there's now a gap in the market for a culturally conservative party that aims for white working class voters, especially in the north of England. So had it not been for Jeremy Corbyn, I'm sure UKIP would be toast now. But there is now a thing in British politics that isn't being served properly. And UKIP, more than Labour at the moment, are designed to aim for those voters. But wouldn't Jeremy Corbyn take the view that Labour's victory in the Oldham by-election was a vindication that he could reach out to working class voters? And he certainly has done. I suppose what makes it sui generis is that the candidate they had in Oldham, Jim McMahon, was unusually good, rooted in the local community, not a classic Corbynite in his own politics. And if you're the average uh, voter in Oldham, he would have been more attractive, I think, in a local situation than, if we fast forward four years, a general election where some of the candidates would be very different and really you're judging the Labour Party on the basis of its national leader. OK, Aisha, can I read you out something from Janan's column and I'll see whether you agree with it. He says, Labour is run by people who embrace everything about the working classes apart from what they say, do and think. Is that true? Well, I think Labour has been having a problem with the working classes for quite a long time. You could argue that actually, since John Prescott left the scene, there hasn't really been a big figure, even with a working class accent that Labour has really used as front of house. And I think this is a problem. I agree with what Janan said. In fact, I did lots of phone canvassing at the Bull Oldham by-election. And what a lot of people said to me on the phone is that we don't really feel a connection with the leadership of the Labour Party at the moment, but Jim McMahon is an excellent local candidate and he's been a great local council leader, so we're going to go with him. And I do think there is a problem with the leadership looking like they're out of touch, not just with the working classes, but I think with a large swathe of the population at the moment, particularly on issues like security. We saw the um, post the Paris attacks, Corbyn's comments on shoot to kill, and it's incredible about how much cut through those comments have actually had. Because I think it's not really about left or right policies. I think most working class people, like most people in this country, want a common sense approach to the economy, to welfare and particularly law and order and national security. And I think the headline messages that are getting kind of that they're picking up on is weird messages about being weak on security, strange messages about law and order and what would happen if there was a shoot to kill policy and a sort of needless row on Trident that just seems quite indulgent to most working class people and most normal people. 
if some nutter in the world has got nuclear weapons, it seems like a no-brainer that you should have them, not because you would want to use them, but just to have them. So I think there is a danger that it, there is looking like quite a disconnect from the leadership of the Labour Party, which is looking like it's very metropolitan, it's sort of debating society class of people, and actually a disconnect from real grassroots supporters in the Labour Party, or and, voters in the Labour Party. And obviously in Oldham, there was quite a big Muslim community there. In your phone canvassing, did you detect a sort of problem, particularly with the white working classes? Yes, I did, actually. I had uh, lots of the phone conversations I had with people, particularly um, people who I believe to be white on the phone, were very, very, very sceptical about Corbyn. The shoot-to-kill stuff was an issue. Um, lots of people said to me on the phone, what we're worried about is the party going very much to the left. That is what people said to me on the phone. Mm. Now, Jangas, you think UKIP are on the wane. I mean, is it not the case that working class traditional Labour supporters have got nowhere else to go, apart possibly in Scotland, where, of course, the SNP have pitched that electorate extremely successfully? Well, I think the, what I'm intrigued by is where they do go. So if you assume these people favour quite a large state in economic terms, so they're comfortable with a left-wing platform in economic terms, but they have no-nonsense views on all the subjects, Aisha is just enumerated. Do they go Tory? I doubt it, because there'll be ancestral reluctance to do that. The Tories have a very bad reputation in the communities I'm talking about, dating back to Thatcher sometimes before. In Scotland, there's the SNP, but not in, in England. Some of them won't vote, I imagine. Sheer disillusion will mean they stay home. And I can imagine the turnout in 2020 being substantially lower than is normal, because a lot of Labour voters don't feel any enthusiasm for their party and won't vote Tory. But I do think there is the potential if UKIP sort themselves out organisationally for them to pick up a good chunk of those. I mean, they already did in, in, in May 25th, mm. four million votes almost nationally. They may have ended up only with one seat and a very unrepresentative MP, Douglas Carswell, much more libertarian than the type of politics I'm talking about. But they've already made some inroads into that vote. And, it's, and that was under Ed Miliband, who was only soft left. So you imagine a Jeremy Corbyn platform five years down the line. Mm. The circumstances are really propitious for them. And the other thing I was keen to get across in the piece is that we often say, and I've said this before, well, isn't it obvious the Labour Party misses the Blairites? So Mandelson, James Pennell, people like that. But I think what they miss more are what we used to call the old Labour right. So people from fairly ordinary backgrounds with tough attitudes towards the subjects we're talking about some of the right-wing union leaders, the old AWU, Ken Jackson, that was as much the spine of New Labour as the Blairites. Yeah. And we never talk about the fact that those guys have now dissipated in number. And Aisha, we often personalise this around Jeremy Corbyn himself, but the fact is the leadership contest really exposed the lack of original thinking on the soft left or the right of the Labour Party, if you like. And that was, that was really exposed, wasn't it? You had three candidates from the centre or the centre-left who just were unable to articulate meaningful policies for working-class voters. Or actually enthuse anybody, really. I think mm. this was the big problem. I remember sitting in, actually, on the first, the very first PLP hustings. And at this point, Jeremy hadn't even got on the ballot paper yet. And everybody was struck by the fact that tonally he sounded, even if you did not agree with what he was saying, he sounded the most interesting, he sounded the most fluent, he sounded the most authentic. And actually quite a few people, we sort of laughed in jest afterwards saying, do you know what, I think he might win this. Ha ha ha, my how we laughed. But actually 
it was there was a there was a lack of ideas there was a lack of excitement from the other mainstream candidates and I suppose the one issue I might pick up with Janan in terms of oh we miss the Peter Mandelsons and we miss the James Pennells I don't know if we do I think one of the things that whether you call the the right of the party moderates or the right whatever or the Blairites I think we've got to give up sort of hanging on to the coattails of you know the fathers that went before us I think people who are in the moderate wing of the party and who want to challenge the ideology of Corbyn, they've got to find a new ideology themselves. They've got to find new ideas which are of the time that we are in now. I think there's no point just looking to the past. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the leadership uh, contest really exposed over s- the summer. Do you see any signs of a person or people emerging who are doing that kind of thinking? I think people are putting their heads down now and starting to do some thinking but I think it's in such early days I think the Corbyn project has had a narrative which has been well developed over the last three decades whatever it is the new project the new label I don't know what it will be called no one has done the deep thinking nobody it's all very well I think what most people have done is in quite a lazy way just go back to a kind of an old form of Blairism and try and resurrect that there needs to be a huge amount of work done and I think people are starting to think about it and starting to do the work but I think I don't get the sense that there is a person or a sort of philosophy yet I think it will come but there does need to be far more work and tonight can ask to what extent can the Conservative Party exploit the difficulties the Labour Party has you mentioned earlier the ancestral resistance of working class voters to go with the Tories George Osborne talks about the Tories becoming the party of working people can he succeed in that I think everything hinges on who succeeds David Cameron so you'd have to assume as long as the Tories are led by Cameron and Osborne or something like that and I think Boris Johnson would be something like that in terms of how they're perceived by the voters we're talking about there must be a limit on how many on how deep an inroad the Tories can make into that vote. They'll just come across as too Southern. They're not natural cultural Conservatives anyway, certainly not George Osborne, certainly not Boris Johnson. Tonally, it's all wrong. They're bound in with previous Labour, uh, previous Conservative governments. They just look and sound very Tory. If, however, those guys were to be succeeded by someone like, and I'm just picking names out of the air, Theresa May, much tougher on immigration from a slightly more ordinary background, though not working class by any means, someone like Sajid Javid, Uh, Very right wing on economics, but actually quite a compelling life story if you come from an ordinary background in in Britain, then potentially they have a higher ceiling. But I always think that the brand issue will stop them in de-industrialised bits of the north of England, and there can never be a dominant party there, which is why, as I stress, uh, UKIP have have it really made for them at the moment. I would definitely agree with that. And I think one of the things that Labour has to be very mindful of is the upcoming EU referendum campaign, because I think particularly in those deindustrialized zones in the north, I think Labour could run the risk of going the way things went in Scotland in terms of the campaign. And I think that is it'll be very interesting to see how UKIP does in those areas and whether that damages Labour's electoral prospects in the long run. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com slash podcasts.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.